What do you mean beards in, in... – In gender trust? It's a fact. How do beards in gender trust? Is that why you're wearing a beard? Google it, bro. Um, probably because my mom had a friend when I was a kid who had a beard. A couple friends, actually. And they were nice fellows. So I always thought, oh, I can't wait to grow a beard. Welcome. I'm Lyle Troxell. I believe that the process of making is an integral part of being human. I create in a multitude of medium. As a software engineer at Netflix, I make web applications for animation artists. In my home shop, I make things out of wood, electronics, and steel. And recently, I'm very attracted to blacksmithing. In a former career, I helped people create high-tech art at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And while I was there, I was introduced to the idea of Fun A Day, a January-based creation endeavor where you create a thing every day for a month. Given my 20 years' experience in radio interviewing people, for 2022's Fun A Day, I have chosen a long-form interview podcast where I explore the human condition, especially around how we thrive as humans while engaging with technology. Welcome to Lunch with Lyle. Hi, Wes Motes. How are you? I'm well. It's good to see you. Did, did you have a good New Year? Um, I had like an old person's New Year. It was fabulous. If you look up facial hair and trust... You will find many papers that report that people with facial hair are perceived as more trustworthy. I wonder if it has to do with Santa Claus. Maybe. Or um, the antagonist in Terminator 2. Wasn't he all metal? Yeah, he was. <laughs> metal, gross, no facial hair. Um, but he was in the shape of a police officer most of the time. Does that character represent evil to you in a really strong way? No. It's just programming. <laughs> that seems that seems unfair. <laughs> you human centric person, you. What do you think of the idea of evil? Evil. Uh, I think I have like two meta feelings about it. Um, on one hand, there are things that I think mm, that's pretty fucking evil. Um, on the other hand. I'm like, well, morality is pretty relative. It doesn't mean that they're, that because it's relative, one shouldn't have one, just that it's relative. What do you think about free will? I don't think about it that often. I guess I take it for granted. I think that we, metaphysically, I think we are, uh, as Alan Watts said, the spinning little complex wordly doodles at the end of a splash of the universe. And that uh, functionally we serve as the way that the universe perceives itself. So in the same way that if we, you know, some people view like uh, if you say like, well, you know, we're just a collection of atoms that are bouncing around as like a sort of a nihilist message. But on the other hand, I think, like, what could be more magical than that? Nothing. We are a bunch of atoms bouncing around, and yet we still can perceive the rest of the universe. We are part of the universe, and we are 
We can look up at the night sky and wonder at the magic of everything. Way to go, universe. Way to go, universe, yeah. Yesterday when I did the first episode of this podcast, I called my sister Adriana and she was talking about an annoying noise in her house. And we she found out with help from younger ears that it was one of those plugs that has USB ports on it. Ooh. And so mm-hmm. I said, well, pull it out of the wall. Put something else there. Get it out of your bedroom. And she said, yeah, if you were here, I would do that. I thought, oh, I can walk you through, the, through that. So today she called and via audio only because when we – did the help we had to turn the breakers off so she only had cell phone coverage so her and her husband alejandro did this pulling of electric circuit out of the wall led by me and just my ability to understand a plug and during it and afterwards maggie said to me how do you do that how do you possibly know what's in that plug and actually what colors the contacts are and all of those things but in any case the amazing thing is it totally worked they were able to pull it out of the out of the wall I wish I'd recorded the whole thing because I think it's it was a blast to listen to them communicate. Your answer to Maggie was uniform building codes. It was incredible. She's in New Hampshire, right? Yeah, but New Hampshire is, for all practical purposes, in terms of electricity, might as well be California. But if it was Canada, it might as well be Mars. Right. It was amazing, though. You know, sure enough, the live line was gold, was uh, brass color. The neutral was silver, white. The cables were all there. She had the old line. house was a little worried. Yep, green, the whole mm-hmm. thing. I knew as she did it, I said this, 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 this. The USB thing was a little different. It didn't have two terminals. It only had one, which is fine and all that. But it was neat to be able to help someone get de-scared of electricity in a safe way. Mm-hmm. Um, safe way. Anyway. I thought of you because there's only a few people in my life that have the same kind of like, man, just get it done. Let's do this. And, you know, you know how I, I know exactly that you know how really well how to change out a, you know, a plug in your house. Yeah, I don't bother. I don't even bother to turn off the circuit. I just like make sure that I don't put my tongue to the bad parts. Or or, or be wet while you're doing it. Yeah. yeah. Wet in a bath yeah. towel, standing on standing in a small puddle with my tongue against the uh, hot part. Anyway, I feel like you and I have a lot of the similar ways of looking at life. You're probably more spiritual in some sense than I am. and But the electronics and the do, do it, let's get this thing done, you and I have a lot of similarities in that way. And I think we're around the same age. Maybe we're a decade apart. I don't know. Um, so I was kind of thinking about you as I was walking this through with somebody. Have you ever done tech support like that over the phone? I have. Yeah, I do a lot of that. I do a lot of like um... – like where we set the groundwork. Okay. I'm going to tell you some things. Let's, um, you know, before you push the button, wait until I say push the button. Before I say do this, you may know, think you know exactly what I'm going to say, and you probably do. But what if you don't? So don't work ahead. Just be my hands and my eyes. We're good. I think a big difference between us is that you are a teacher and I decided to go into like tech stuff. I left the university life and went into tech world. It's funny. I actually think of you as a teacher. And in fact, I happen to know that you have been a teacher and teaching technophobic people, very technophilic subjects. So um, it's one thing to introduce to people who are 
you know, skeptical or whatever ideas. But in your case, you were literally teaching them ohms and voltage and resistors and solder. And Yeah, you were talking about when I was running the boot camp for Digital Arts mm-hmm. New Media Program at UCSC and, and did a, a week and a half or two week seminar on all the tech necessary to know about technology for art, which is an amazingly a lot of work. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot to jam in two weeks. I think that the, in general, um, what most people got out of it was like, okay, this isn't scary. Yeah. That's about it. You know, they forgot Ohm's Law. They forgot the relationship between watts and power or whatever. But uh, they walked away not as scared. There's a bit about magic in the world that, you know, when you don't have the technical knowledge to kind of know a bit about what's going on, everything around you is magical, right? How a dishwasher works is kind of magical. And and when I say magical, I'm using that as an ex- not not as in how magnificent, but much more about how I don't know how it works and I never will and I, it's a mystery to me and it's, uh, you know, non-touchable. So having a little bit of breakdown of like, no, it's actually, you can do it, you can figure it out, is great. And, it, you know, I think it's kind of akin to people saying, I, I hate math or I didn't, I wasn't good in math. This idea that because they had a bad experience with it or it was hard, it's just always going to be this thing that's not a part of them. So I definitely, I definitely am drawn to showing people that they can understand these things. Yeah, I think of you as a teacher. So, Well, I think of you as a teacher, too. And I also know that we don't pay teachers very well. And you are <laughs> you are openly communicating really? that regularly. Uh, yeah, I'm kvetching about that on the Internet. Um, and I think it's something that most, uh, um, most students, and particularly the parents of students who are writing the checks, really don't know that uh, our university professors who are genuine professors who are tenure track of which there's a rapidly decreasing number of most institutions are winnowing those people. Um, They're paid decently usually for the place that they are um, and have a a degree of um, job security, but fully 50% uh, or more, most classes are taught by adjunct or contingent uh, faculty, and those people are remarkably underpaid. Mm-hmm. Um, they're paid about the same as like a maybe a Seven Eleven assistant manager. What kind of rate are we talking about for for someone that's like a lecture faculty? Who's it's funny you asked about this. We didn't actually talk about like what we were going to talk about today, but this is what I did this morning. I was just curious. And um, at one of the schools I go to, which is a top-tier California state school, or we'll say middle-tier maybe, um, I net about 22 an hour, which is the same amount that my partner makes when she is working back house at a restaurant. So 22 an hour, and that's based on working in the classroom and on prep and grading. Mm-hmm. All the Yeah, all the so... It, it depends on the class. It depends on whether you've taught it before. Right. Um, generally, if a, if a teacher is in a class for a couple hours, it's pretty well understood that for every hour in the class, they are prepping for two hours. So prep doesn't just mean like preparing the class, but it also means like grading, answering emails, uh, um, 
organizing the students stu- into groups, meeting, meeting with, with students. Students, exactly. Mm-hmm. I I did teach officially, like the the program I did at UCSC that you were speaking about about your grad the grad program you went into right after I left um, mm-hmm. was kind of impromptu where we realized the students coming in didn't have some general skills that they would need for courses. So I was trying to lever the bar. And I was doing that as a staff member. It wasn't even a, a course and there was no credit for mm-hmm. it. But in 2019, right before the pandemic and during the pandemic, I actually did teach at UCSC as a lecturer in the theater department mm-hmm. doing a podcast course. It was a great amount of work. It was 125 people in the class. I had two full-time uh, TAs who did most all the grading. And... Mm-hmm. I didn't want to do it again. It is, it's not, be- and <laughs> I, I, the money is not that important for me because I still had a full-time job as a software engineer, but the pay wasn't, you know, amazing, but it wasn't the reason. But the biggest thing was that it felt very much like a lecturer. I wasn't engaging with these people. There was too many of them. So then I'm in this space where I'm mm. telling them I'm, you know, on the mountaintop lecturing them and they are either getting it or not getting it. The only feedback I get is some written word that I assigned to them anyway. It felt very disingenuous to who I want to be as a teacher. Yeah, it's really hard to come into a classroom with an idea that, uh, um, as uh, Nicole Hannah-Brown says, that classrooms have the possibility of being democratic spaces. It's hard to walk into a space like that and look at 200 students and know that you already come in with a measure of power in terms of the hierarchy of the academy it is difficult to uh, break down those relations, like the hierarchical relationships. I'm a, somewhat of an iconoclast as a teacher. So like I start from the beginning, you know, I like, I have a content warning at the beginning. I'm going to curse like a sailor. I'm going to fuck up. I'm going to uh, say embarrassing things. I'm going to backpedal. I'm going to get your names wrong. I'm going to mess up your grade. Uh, and we're going to talk about it. And it's going to be a conversation all along the road. And I'm going to learn things from you that I didn't already know. And hopefully you might learn a thing or two from me. Um, And so even though there's a hundred of you out there, we're going to try to make this be a space in which we share learning. And and we always do. And I try to learn all their names and whatnots. But um, it helps a lot, of course, if you have a class that you are pretty familiar teaching, unlike your class, right? Because then you can get into the stylings and the feel and the flow of it rather than do I have the content. It's because you have already syllabus, you already know what you're going to do, and then you can kind of think at a meta layer about how it's working for everybody rather than the content itself. Yeah, it's like learning a dance, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're struggling to learn the dance, of course you're not going to be very styling. Yeah. Um, you're not going to have much opportunity for um, ad lib and... Uh, so, yeah, uh, and it also helps if the class sizes are smaller, of course, right? right? Or, or the units so. are higher so that you meet with them more frequently. I was meeting once a, once a week for an hour, so it was hard. Yeah, to, that's not much. Yeah. God, those, that's not much. No, or hour and a half, whatever. But it's because it was a lecture course. In any case, I want to talk about something else with you that I, I find really interesting. And I've always kind of been in, in curious. One of the first things I remember about you as an individual was – this a side effect of you having a dog on campus or a dog at work mm-hmm. or a dog everywhere you went. And I'm talking mm-hmm. about, I'm blanking on your dog's name. Hazel. Hazel. Thank you. My eye, Like my eye color. Like your eye color. Like her eye color. Is that why she's called Hazel? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is. And you brought Hazel with you and I, I asked about it 
and you said very clearly that it's a support animal and labeled mm -hmm. it in a way. And at some level, I think that at this time frame, it wasn't a common thing for me. It was kind of the first time I really saw a support animal come in there. And I was like, mm -hmm. what do you need? Like, I didn't understand it at all. So I was asking all the ignorant questions about what a support animal is for and all that and kind of <laughs> understand that a lot what, in, what invisible disability do you have? What? <laughs> tell us more about that. Yeah, of course. Curious, curious, awkward, totally inappropriate and awesome questions that people have. Right. And happens. And then the other thing, I mean, before that, I knew of you as being a board member at KOSP and being very active in change and energetically so. And also, I had recalled experiences you'd had with um, police officers being complete assholes. Mm -hmm. And so all of those things wrapped up to me to go, wait, Wes has these qualities that are really impressive. Like, for example, your ability to continually be creating and making things. Like, even though you're teaching full-time and all these other things you do, you're also like, is it a train that you're building on your property? Uh, building a train station that's going to Burning Man in 2022. Oh, cool. A, a full-size recreation of a train station from 1938 oh, i didn't know it was a full size i didn't know you were doing that is it full size oh, or how big is the train station gonna be it's 20 by 8 with 120 foot of track and uh signals and the like a signal bridge and crossing mass and nice. inside there's a ticket ticket counter and oh this will be amazing. is this 2022 <laughs> or 2023 in 2022, 2022. So, this year? I guess technically this year. Oh, that's, a, that's fantastic. Okay. But anyway, making electronics and doing all this work. And your property, of course, you're always kind of working on the space you live in with really cool space. It's a great place to visit. So I'm thinking about all this. And at the same time, you're also aware that you are not always performing in an amazing way. And you need support. And you set up your environment such that you do get that as support. And there is a lot of wisdom in that. I don't think everybody has that. And so I just kind of talk to you, like, how did you discover that, for example, a support animal would help you engage with humans better? Like, what does it do for you? Yeah, good question. Um, so uh, there's actually some language or vocabulary around um, support or service animals. A support animal, uh, legally or technically, is an animal that provides some, just its presence provides you with support. So people might have a support cat or a support parrot. It's important to them, right? Not to diminish that at all. Um, a service animal is trained in a specific uh, service, a particular way in which she or he helps their person. The traditional would be a seeing eye dog that helps guide and yeah, that, right? like that's a that's a very visible disability. A um, more invisible disability would be somebody who had, say, PTSD. Uh, or maybe even something like epilepsy or something. And the dog would signal to its person when it needed to pay closer attention to the symptoms. Like for an epileptic to sit down, for example. Yeah, not to fall. or to somebody with PTSD, just to um, uh, the service the dog might provide might be as simple as like licking a hand mm -hmm. or moving between people between a person and the person, the interlocutor that they're talking to mm -hmm. um, just as a measure of like not physical safety, but like emotional safety and awareness uh, and awareness sometimes um, depends on the service that the dog is trained to provide. Um, in my case, I was actually dealing with some leftover um, cop stuff where as an activist, uh, the Santa Cruz cops had targeted me, beat the shit out of me, 
and then charged me with assaulting an officer, which they do. Um, we're well aware that that happens all the time um, in America, more than we were, say, 10, 12 years ago. Um, particularly, obviously, with people with less privilege than me, um, black and brown skin, poor people. Um, and so I was dealing with that trauma as well as uh, I was working at UCSC and had a boss that was really very threatening and made my life very difficult. And my doctor just said, have you considered having a service animal among the many things we were discussing? And I said, mm, no, I had not. And so I did. And so, um, yeah, so she provided a service during those times um, and continuingly that helped me feel comfortable around peoples and in stressful situations and stuff. What does Hazel do that help has helped you out? Um, some of the things I mentioned, actually, she's uh, she'll provide like positive stimulus. Um, she'll lick my hand um, or my face. Uh, she will get between me and another person. Um, she will stand next to me and lean against me. And this is so when you have those encounters, they don't escalate or they don't like they're not as traumatic for you. Well, what's, mm -hmm, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. How are you doing with PTSD from the experience? <laughs> Pretty good. Um, it's funny because I don't think that I've had those symptoms of like hypervigilance and uh, sleeplessness and stuff um, in many years, but you don't like turn in your dog, you know, <laughs> like yeah. turn in your service animal. Like, okay, I'm good. <laughs> because of your experience with that, with having a traumatic experience with the police, and I'm assuming you were doing a protest of some state nature, it was probably completely mm -hmm. um, nonviolent until they emerged. <laughs> it was nonviolent until the police came and yeah. brought it. <laughs> um, do you, are you less likely to, to participate in, um, in actions of, uh, you know, free speech? Ooh, that's or, a good or question. Are you? Um, God, I'd so love to say like, no, the man can't keep me down. Fuck the pigs. <laughs> you know, like, but realistically, no, like, and you know what? It wasn't that experience. It was like the two years of, you know, we're all familiar with like being arrested as a thing. And we're all familiar with like jail as a concept that it's a thing. But I was in lawyer jail for the next two years after that. So that means like you're dealing with lawyers and courts and filing Brady, you know, Petition. Brady findings and discovery and secondary discovery request. It just went on and on and on. And I was really deeply involved in all that. And it just went on. And um, yeah, I kind of was like uh, Bruce Willis. I'm too old for this shit. So now you look at the possibility of doing something like that and you're like, I don't want all that time and energy of my life. I don't know. I mean, why did, why does one get involved in protest in general? They want the world to be better. More than that. I think it's about also seeing injustice and wanting to do something to make that better. And as Thoreau said, you have to throw your body on the gears of the machine until the until the gears of injustice cannot turn. Check your text message. 
I am writing down that quote of Thoreau's because I love it. Oh. <laughs> I want to go read it. I want to go read it. Check to see if it really was him. No, I like, want to uh, just – I think lots of times when you hear wise things, it's very easy to just take that as a moment instead of then process it later a bit. So I'm trying to do better. I'm also not as literate, if you will. I've never read Thoreau, for example, though recommended many times. And you've you've thrown down multiple peoples, Alan Watts, Nicole Hannah-Brown, Thoreau. And when people mention that, when I'm chatting with them for podcast stuff, nice. I try to take note I, of it so I know the context even later. I always love your openness to hear things. Well, I think that it's really wise of you to understand that, no, you, don't, you know, fuck the man. I don't want that to affect me. It's not going to affect me. And also go, well, it probably affects me. <laughs> it affects me. <laughs> I'm a human. Yeah. I mean, it's like, what do you do when like all your inner, like all the things you're working on kind of grind to a halt? because you're trying to protect your freedom, right? And I don't mean like, oh my God, like, boy, is that taking weird meanings these days. Um, but like literally there is, you know, the force, the courts or the cops um, who their job is to imprison people, to convict and imprison people. And um, you want to not have that happen. And, um, yeah. And at the end, when you win, if you win, the best you get is nothing. You get this not happening anymore. Nobody says like, gosh, well, that took two years of your life and a lot of lawyer time and, you know, and a lot of community support and so on. And, um, and they don't say and like and here since you won here's like a big you know reward here's your cake reward here's your cake did you win that whole case did it come out that you or two years Um, of your life is not a win i don't (laughs) yeah no i don't there isn't a way to win um in the in the case of assaulting officers uh i eventually wanted the lawyer jail to end Um, and the deal I made, as most people do, most people plead out, um, was I took a, was a misdemeanor disturbing the peace or something versus, you know, felony beating an officer or whatever Right, right. Which would affect your life much more severely. Oh my God. Yeah, totally. Um, and, um. I don't know. Is that a win? Yeah. Well, it's kind of it, this kind of falls back to the evil question. I I don't really <laughs> believe in evil in the sense in some sense. I think that people can be pretty horrible. But I think almost all the time the human condition blinds people to what they really are doing. And it's severely it, it's a it's a an, it overrides every ability to be impartial. And so the circumstances that we're in make us impartial subjects to whatever we do. And so those people that are doing evil, the police officers, for example, they're the way that they're injected into the world and molded around and the community they have, all of it looks like they're doing the right thing for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So I mean, and that's what I was saying. Like I have a meta understanding of a relative, relative morality and, um, I mean, so many of the conflicts we have, like, you know, people saying, like, there is racism and it is deeply integrated into our society. And white people look at that and say, like, "Uh, really? (laughs) Like, I don't see that. 
<laughs> um, and they literally mean that, right? Like, right. Uh, like I, I don't see that. Well, in Boulder Creek, you know, you, you might not, you know. Um, and so their relative position is that, uh, you know, <laughs> this isn't the thing that they need to worry about. Um, I think that truly immoral people, people who know something is wrong and do it anyway, are relatively rare. I think that there's lots of people who are part of a system that they trust, but don't necessarily understand that that system itself is part of a system that's based on or designed to oppress or to um, control people. And, you know, if you do really get super empathetic in a sense, like in a magical level of empathy, and you start understanding how much your good fortune is at the hands of others, then you you probably would get to the point of not being capable to live because at every level you're doing something that is affecting the world. Driving gas cars, for example, is a real transparent thing for us now. Or even using electricity here, right? It's burning coal. And so we, we're aware of the climate change problem. We're still doing it. I have my lights on in this room. And so all the time we're kind of doing that. So there, there is a challenge there on at what level do you make sure things change? And that comes back to your question of when do you protest? Yeah, I think that we all accept compromises in our lives if we are part of modern society um we use computers uh we are using computers now um so much of the infrastructure of our lives is based around uh exploitation of folks who are in say the global south or developing countries um i have an iphone Hmm, right? Who is that made by? I, I don't know. I have not visited the factories in Indonesia. Or... We hear stories sometimes about how bad the factories are that people try to kill themselves. Exactly. Yeah. And there's, um, I think those compromises are challenging. And I think that those companies and those who control those companies would like to turn that yeah. responsibility individually inward. Versus taking responsibility for it at a corporate level. So it's not a problem that there are manufacturers generating tons and tons and tons of plastic. It's your fault, Lyle, that you didn't recycle that bottle. Though we thought we could recycle (laughs) things. We can't actually recycle things. No. Now now they're probably all just going to the landfill. Yeah, pretty much everything. Pretty much everything but glass and aluminum, I think, at this point. Even paper bars in this area. Yeah, recycling is not the, the dream it once was. It, it feels like it's a... I remember my grandfather first told me about recycling when I was probably 10 or something like that. You know, so 40 years, almost 40 years ago. And um, at the time, nobody else was doing it. And he was kind of a mover and shaker in Boulder Creek, actually. And I thought that's... It was ridiculous at first and embarrassing a while. And then I started getting into it and then everybody was getting into it. And now I look back and go, was that a panacea? Was that just a way to make us all feel better? about the evil we do or whatever. And that that's the part that's kind of hard to decide. When do you move with what feels right versus trying to figure out what is right? Well, I mean, getting back to what you said about like where I come from and how I look at things. So someone told me about them, also applies to me, that they were a radical. 
and that by radical, the root rad uh, is about roots, like radish or me amor, right? Um, and so a radical is a person who looks at the roots of things. And so I'm always trying to, you know, why, what, <laughs> what does recycling do? It creates a, a, a supply stream for manufacturers to get products cheaper. And most cities uh, have laws that require you to recycle which is providing material for products. So looking at those cycles and those traps that we're in, guilt traps sometimes, right? Guilt trips and traps. Um, you know, a lot of it comes down to those systems of power for me. Um, and I'm always interested in looking at those closer and challenging those when possible. How do you stay active and what, what, what brings you to be creative? Like you're doing Burning Man. What, why do that? Also, what, what gives you a sense of purpose and pleasure in life? Oh, those are Just the easy questions, questions, sir. Well, yeah. Like, why do you do the things you do? And uh, what gives you meaning? Um, I don't know. I don't know. A compulsion? Um, I used to tell people that uh, action is the antidote to despair. Is that your quote? That's mine. <laughs> because it's true. Um, you know, like uh, you stay active, you do things, you build stuff, you try and fail. And, you know, you you learn as you fail. You try to fail or you try not to fail? You try and fail. Uh, you try. You, try. you will fail. Okay. That is inevitable, right? <laughs> yeah. Um. And uh, that is a that goes a long way toward making us not like every subject we touched on has a darker side, right? Mm -hmm. and kind of a deep. Some of those things have pretty deep, dark holes of despair. <laughs> despair there. Mm -hmm. And staying active, I think, is one way that uh, it keeps me out of those holes. Yeah. Um, is that a trick? I don't know. I just, I just like building stuff. I think it's, uh, um, there's magic in making stuff in putting stuff together. And it's, it's more of a compulsion. I think, I don't know. Okay. When you know, well, this is like after a day I spent in my shop, just soldering stuff together. I was like putting together raspberry pies, uh, with this whole infrastructure that's going to serve as the multimedia, part of the train station. Why does the train station have multimedia? Because the train station um, has come unstuck in time. Ooh. And so as it slips through about 250 years of known and alternative history, it will, um, it has a, a TV in the waiting room and a radio going in the office and, and the lights are controlled and, um, those things will respond to those time slips that happen about every 26 minutes or so. So the Raspberry Pis are the things that are controlled lights. They also they control the projectors for mm -hmm. any kind of visual you need. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so when you're doing that, when you're connect with soldering that up and stuff, and you get it to work, 
How's it feel? Dot, dot, dot. Um, it feels good. I love that stuff. Oh, my God. It, it, I'm very happy. It makes me happy. Uh, are you Are you happy <laughs> about getting it to work? Are you happy about showing it to people? I think getting it to work. Showing people is like an extra bonus. But you do get joy from like that, I have, too. I have a very supportive partner who also is a digital artist, and so uh, she gets to enjoy the little things I'm playing with myself. But also, I think, like, okay, I'm doing this dumb thing, and I'm super obsessing about, I don't know, the JavaScript that's going to control this panel that's used to give me diagnostics about all the systems. Like, does it need to be quite as fancy as I'm making it? I'm asking myself, right? But I'm like, no, certainly not. But it will be fun to do. And also, I am having to Google the shit out of how to do what I'm doing, spending all my time on Stack Overflow. And I'm going to be learning how to do a thing. And that learning is is something I'll take with me forever. Yeah. Or at least until I forget next month. Right. Well, why JavaScript stack? Just because you you've done web development before? Why not Python? I thought everybody's doing Python nowadays. Um, the controller's in Python, but the um, the uh, control panel is in uh, JavaScript. And like uh, HTML? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So what does that look like? Let's see if we can find it. Carry on. Your next question. So you're, motiv- so you're motivated by just doing it and getting it done and figuring that out and that joy of discovery and learning it. Oh, you're showing me now the video of this, the control <laughs> panel. Oh, cool. Look, looks slick. The, this will not be on display, right? This will just be on the laptop. No, this is just iPad this is just me messing around with uh, all the things. Having a con- control panel so that I can, you know, if I'm giving somebody a tour, I can trigger uh, a train coming by. Yeah. You know, it's so funny when you're building complex systems, the actual running stuff manually or the easily test a thing or run something specific is such a crucial piece of actually understanding it. It's almost like a debugger for the system that you're building, right? It's That's exactly what it started as. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I put that into apps um, when I'm working on them too. Web apps will always have kind of an area where I can toggle something without the server toggling it or whatever is necessary. Um, mm-hmm. to, to yeah, so I – I can send little JSON nuggets uh, to each of the controllers to just get their status or trigger whatever they do. Each of the controllers or each of the Python uh, boards? I mean, oh, sorry, each yeah, of the each, uh, Pi boards. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there's right. like, uh, I think, eight. So, pies. I mean, that touches directly that idea of action as the um, antidote to despair. It touches directly on kind of why I'm doing this little podcast is that I – did GeekSpeak for 20 years with that, and I kind of stopped for a period of time. In the last couple of years, now, there's been other things going on that has been depressing and hard, but um, I haven't been regularly doing my own creative work every week, right? I've just been kind of like more time on the mm. sofa with a coffee, more staring out into the world and working. And what I found is that all this energy shifted into my day job. I just started working a lot more hours, which... Yeah, your day job is probably not unhappy about all of your creative output going right into there. Not bad at all. I was I was con- <laughs> I was given good marks for all the work I'd been mm-hmm. doing. Good. Yeah. Well, I mean that is what uh, an employer wants is 
They want passionate people, passionate about the work that they're doing. And, you know, being passionate about the work you're doing feels good. I like yeah. It. The only downside, and it's, you know, uh, um, corporations are not usually that careful about not taking a short-term gain, <laughs> you know, and burning a long-term bridge. Mm -hmm. Um but the more creative outlets you have to play that aren't your job, the less two years from now you'll be like, what the fuck am I doing? And just, you know, come back from Burning Man, rage quit your job and buy an RV and tour around the, you know, Southwest, right? Like that's your path if you don't have little creative outlets. When was the last time you took shanty boat out on a river? <laughs> I thought you were going to ask, when was the last time you came back from Burning Man and rage quit your tech job? Uh, last time was 2001. <laughs> <laughs> Is that when you quit the UCSC tech role? No, no. no that was uh, that was when I rage quit. Uh, I was working as a, a web team manager in Silicon Valley for an up-and-coming, newly uh, IPO'd uh, – uh, web content management system company. And you um, and you came back from Burning Man and was like, what am I doing with my day? And you quit. Yeah, I just like sat down at my desk and I was like, I literally don't think I can manifest the kind of creative energy to do this kooky bullshit probably ever yeah. again. And so I just like told everybody like, oh, you know, hey, you want to go to lunch? People said it about 1130. And I was like, no, I'm good. I have my own lunch plans. And they're like, all right, we'll see you after lunch. And I'm like, see you after lunch. And, and I just took a box and packed up all the stuff that mattered to me and walked out. And the, you know, receptionist said, bye, see you after lunch. And I was like, bye, see you later. And never went back. Never went back. Quit via email. Did people contact you that you worked with? Yeah, um, I had let down the team, and I was sad about that. Um, uh, you know, like, I probably would approach it more considered, but at this point in my my old wisdom. Um, because of the people. But, uh, yeah, just because yeah. yeah. the people Especially on my that team. Was the, that time period, I was also out of work on high tech, but that was – getting a company decided to close an arm because it wasn't profitable and I lost my job even though I'd kind of moved up for, back to Santa Cruz from it and had a, a baby on the way. Um, mm -hmm. It was really stressful. And that's when, you know, that definitely was the point where like, okay, yeah, the company doesn't care about you. You're, you're a even service you're Regardless providing. of how many times they refer to you as family. Yes, yes. It's actually yeah. one of the things I like about Netflix. They, everyone says it's not family. <laughs> you fired anytime. Good. It's not family. Yeah, go <laughs> At home. At least it's go honest. Go home to your family. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, and yeah. And, uh, oh, so what would, what did you ask? When was the last time? Oh, <laughs> what was the yeah. real question you asked? <laughs> Where did I actually ask? Um, I was just curious, yeah. one of the projects that you do that I'm amazed with and, and, and have supported before financially, cause I love it so much is the shanty boat. You've taken, oh, you've right, created yeah. a boat that looks like a building. It is a building on a boat, and it you've taken it like to lots of major rivers. Chicken shack or something. Yeah, it looks like chicken shack. And you've taken it to multi, multiple rivers in the U.S. and traveled down it and interviewed people that have lived on the boat and the rivers. And it's an amazing. So project. it's interesting. Like we were just talking about like rage quitting and jobs and passions, right? Um, I was working at the university when probably – I don't know when we met. We've met so many, so many years ago. Neither of us can, I'm sure, remember. But um, – 
for about 10 years. I worked at the university. I worked at the library. And, um, you know, it was okay. Like, the university is good if you want to just die in your job someday and not be overtaxed on the way to the grave, right? Um, they don't ask a lot of you and your job is more or less guaranteed and you can work as hard as you like or not as the case may be. Right. Um, and I like my job. I did good stuff and it wasn't really something I was really passionate about. And, um, I decided I wanted to go back to grad school for my MFA. And so rather than rage quit, I just, uh, gracefully transitioned into, my um, grad school and in the middle of the between the f first and second year of my grad school I had been building by the way on the on the weekends and nights um, at that job sort of like uh, what I imagine is like the escape pods like on like spaceships you know this um, boat that was essentially a shanty uh, using all reclaimed materials and uh and I didn't really have a plan other than I want to sit in a lake and drink, you know, gin and tonics uh, on a sunny day. Um, but in between my first and second year, I didn't have any plans and, and I needed to put something together. So I put together a proposal to do this uh, project where I float down major rivers and record the stories of people in river communities with this idea of like preserving and understanding and, and ex exhibiting um, evidence of river culture. Through these like communities. an anthropologist of people that live on a river. Almost. Yeah. Except the best thing about being an artist <laughs> is that nobody really says like, Oh, you know, no, this, I'm not sure about this methodology. Right? Right, right. Or I'm not a sociologist. I'm not an anthropologist. Um, uh, I am an artist and I had a point of view and, and went out in the world to try to meet some cool people who were doing cool stuff on the rivers and uh, been doing that nonstop since 2014. So that's like every, every well, summer, every summer. Right. So every summer we'd go to a different river, um, not nonstop actually, because when COVID happened, I was already planning to take a year sabbatical um, to write a book, which I'm working on. And um, that turned into like a three year sabbatical. So, our next river is in 2023. We'll be on the Atchafalaya in Louisiana, oh. uh, which is the river that would have been the uh, would have been the Mississippi's outlet to the Gulf if they had let it and not put in flood control hmm. um, infrastructure. Was it was it at one point did it did the Mississippi toggle between it and another and the the path that it's currently in or has uh, it slowed well probably for certain certainly in like flood zone in flood stage right um when the mississippi river is not being as well behaved as people would like it um i think that was all like a lot of american river policy comes from the after the 1929 i think it was there was just a catastrophic flood uh, throughout the entire Delta region. Um, in the same way that like, uh, so much of our fire policy comes from a few fires mm. really early on in the 20th century. Um, 
where we put yeah, all the certainly. might of man against ever that happening again. Exactly. Instead of yeah. planning in a way of like, well, we're on a planet. It's going to be a certain way. Let's figure out how to work right. with it. Right. It was the a logical, ex- logical extension of the Renaissance, right? We're going to control nature. Yeah. We're gonna... yeah it's, so, um, it's interesting how much infrastructure is like a war. It doesn't – it seems like a well, weird way to take I it. I think when you use a war metaphor, a war on COVID or a war on – floods or on fire force fires, then you have a certain martial mentality in how you go about it. You don't say like, well, these people have invaded our space. How can we get along with them? Right. Right? Like it's a, oh, um, so anyway, uh, during COVID we haven't, uh, I've just been writing and, and doing other projects like this, uh, train station. Um, but uh, we'll be on the Atchafalaya and some of the nearby bayous going down through Delta region, Sounds which lovely. is not a place we've been. We've been on the Mississippi River a couple times and the Sacramento River, the Tennessee River through the south, um, the Hudson River through New York, and then the Ohio River, which is a really, really huge river that runs from like Pittsburgh all the way down to St. Louis. But we went to um, uh, Louisville. What, what's been your greatest learning experience from traveling these rivers? Don't drown. Has it been scary? Um, yeah, at times. <laughs> I mean, we haven't drowned, uh, and we haven't really come that close to drowning. Um, I think that what people have told me about boating is that every serious boating accident um, may seem like it came up quite suddenly, and it usually does. But it's the result of something done or not done earlier. Have you have you made those mistakes that would have potentially led to something and then realized later, oh, if I didn't do Discoveries? that? Discoveries? Yeah, yeah. We've totally had close calls, you know, like um, like just strangely, like one of the things that's one of the biggest hazards that we face is big uh, yachts. Not even really super yachts, just like uh, boats that have a really deep hull that displace a lot of water and have powerful motors and can move really fast. So they create a wake that if it hits us from the wrong angle, probably won't capsize us, capsize us, but could make things very bad for us. Brings all those thoughts Um, of, Oh, this could be bad. Yeah. And we've had some close calls. And so now, you know, like that's a matter of like, if we we have a person permanently on watch, and if that person sees someone coming straight at us, we veer to discourage them from visiting us. Yeah. Uh, weather. We pay attention to weather because it can change. And um, not being out in a big blow is a really good thing. Anchoring somewhere safe is much better. Prior but, to this uh, experience of traveling all over the rivers of the United States with a homemade boat. Had you had any boating experience? Yeah. Uh, but like dumb, dumb boating experience. Uh, we, um, I was a train hopper all through like the nineties and early two thousands just to get around. Cause I was poor, I was a poor student and later as a poor worker. Um, and uh, I had some train hopping friends who I heard were launching from Minnesota and going down the entire Mississippi. And I just thought, oh, my God, that sounds amazing. So I wanted to be part of that. Uh, I, I couldn't get off work that year. So I was like, next year, next year, I'm absolutely going to be there. 
Well, next year they weren't really doing anything. Um, and so I just did DIY'd it and got a bunch of inner tubes from a truck store, <laughs> tire store, and some dumpster plywood and drove to the Missouri River, Omaha, Nebraska, and floated for a couple of weeks on that river. And um, had encamped along the banks and, you know, ate, ate what we what we brought and uh, just used canoe oars to paddle it around and was such a good time that the next year we did it again on a different river and again and again. And each year we would invite more people. So at one point we had probably 20 punks and uh, 12 boats and two dogs and a duck. Um, and floated uh, north on the Willamette River from Eugene to very near Portland. So you've done that floating for a long time. Yeah, that's it was cool. like four or that. five years, yeah. When you're on a giant raft made of inner tubes, uh, tire <laughs> inner tubes with plywood, and you've got some oars, how do you possibly move it? Like, it seems like you're mostly just doing currents, right? Um, you float a lot, obviously, right? And you're not using the paddles to go anywhere you're really just maneuvering it to make sure that that snag that you're starting to see kind of in the distance that you don't just dead on hit that or if there's you know some rocks or whatever you kind of avoid those or if there's a beach that you want to camp on you paddle like hell to get there before it floats on past yeah um it turns out that the Truck tubes are so buoyant, you really only have like an inch of draft. You're barely in the water, even with, even when we had a couch and uh, carpet and a library and all of our water for <laughs> two weeks and and and, uh, and doing this in the summer, a, so you don't have to deal with yeah. The, and we the, had like a little cabin built of like found bamboo and twine and and old sheets and um. Yeah, we're still only like a couple inches in the water, so it's pretty easy to move with a couple canoe paddles. It sounds like you've made space in your life for long times of relaxation because it seems to me, though there'd be stressful moments and all that, a lot of that's just chilling with some drinks and some friends and some probably homemade music. It's funny. I'm kind of notorious for having really busy chilling times like uh <laughs> like you know like hey let's go float down a river that sounds so idyllic and relaxing and you know little would you know that at the end of the night you'd go to you'd go to sleep pass out completely because you're exhausted and your arms are tired from paddling around uh obstacles and stuff um yeah i'm kind of like a Busy chiller. I like to work really hard and then chill for a minute. How do you not overcommit yourself? Oh, is that a thing? I didn't know that was a thing. That that was even a possibility. I thought you. Oh man, I wish I'd known that earlier. Well, Maggie and I have this idea, and I don't know where it came from. Somebody else probably told us the idea of it, but. Basically, the, the person that dies with the most unfinished projects wins. Oh, I'm, I'm winning. Go ahead and celebrate the collection of <laughs> pro- unsolved projects or unfinished projects. But you seem to do achieve a lot of completed projects. I think that there's probably twice as many that I'm not completing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think <laughs> it's just a lot. Of, just uh, You do a lot, and then it turns out that some of it gets done. 
It's like magic. Yeah. And then people say, gosh, that guy really gets stuff done. Do you say no to things? It's happened. It's happened. Um, I, I like, I'm just about to go into a term in which I am teaching four classes at one school and three classes at another. That's a heavy load for a teacher, sir. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, and at the same time, I'm working on this big, you know, uh, honoraria project for Burning Man, right? Um, so yeah, I guess I'm not the best person to go to, like, uh, for how to say no to cool stuff. Well, I mean, is this quality of you that likes to be busy even when chilling? Is this mean that that will just be a joyous experience, being always having more to do? And are you concerned that you're distracting yourself? Oh, that's a good question. Like, what are you hiding from, sir? Um, I don't know, because I'm too busy to think about it. You could ask my service dog. <laughs> Is Hazel better at chilling than you? Uh, Hazel does nothing but chill. <laughs> Hazel's the chillest dog. Um, I don't know. I mean, I also like to think about stuff. I mean, your profession is about thinking about things, right? Being a teacher means you always have to be thinking about things. Yeah, I just think that I do stuff because when you do a thing, you don't know what the end is going to be. You not you don't know who it's going to inspire. You don't know what the journey is going to take you to or who you're going to meet along the way. And I just want to live in a world where there are lots of open doors not just for me, you know, like I'm a, a 50 something white guy, white cis het male person born in 20th century America. So like they're already like lots of doors open to me, you know, but I want to live in a world that like there are lots of open doors for me and lots of open doors for you and lots of open doors for all sorts of folk. Um, and so I like to try to do what I can to see what doors we can open or kick down if necessary. Do you think of yourself as a teacher primarily because it's a, of a service perspective? I mean, as you know, you could do software development and make a lot more money and probably have less stress and all of that. Um, I think of myself as an artist who teaches. Okay. But I think all artists tell themselves that, right? Like, I'm an artist who also works as a waiter. Yeah. But making the world better for more people seems like education's a good one if you're going to if that's your one of your goals. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and I mean like at one point I was we were talking about how little um adjunct professors get paid and and often how much is asked of them that's just freebies for the university. Um and I was complaining about that one day and uh my partner said, like, why Why do you do that? Have you considered, like, another career? And I said, well, you know, it's a shitty job, but it's the best shitty job I've ever had. Yeah. But it's a shitty job, but the, but the helpings are really big. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there's so much of it. <laughs> what are the classes? What are the five classes you're teaching? I also get summers off. Um, 
Uh, I'm teaching uh, a class on like HTML, CSS stuff, mm -hmm. basic web, um, web scripting. So JavaScript, um, web design. So I always get slotted as an artist who knows technology. I always get slotted. If I'm in an art department, I get slotted into technology stuff. And if I'm in the technology department, I get slotted into the creative arty stuff. So um, then I'm teaching like kind of basic computer literacy to all these designers who would very much like to avoid it completely. Oh, that's too bad. Um, well, I mean, that's why they weren't CS majors, right? Because they're like, math, scary. Let's design some things. Um, and I'm teaching another like uh, class called uh, – Programming for artists. So I'm teaching artists how to program. Been teaching that for like five, six years. At, I like uh, that course. UCS. What do you use? Uh, we JavaScript, and um, so it ends up being very functionally similar to like two of the classes I teach at the other school. And then the last class, which is new to me, is uh, 4D Foundations. So that'll be a more creative class for me. That'll be fun. Why is so, it 4D? 4D. 3D plus time. Cool. So moving sculpture stuff. Yeah. Kinetic sculpture. Um, like and animation. And oh, animation. like how that, like performance is 4D art, right? Cool. So how you tell a story over time. Yeah. Um, um, all those Back things. to the programming for artists. I'm curious about this because I taught it and had this problem uh, trying to help professors teach it mm -hmm. in Danum. Danum's the program that you have in mm -hmm, van mm -hmm. called Digital Arts New Media at UCSC. Still accepting students, by the way, yeah, um, that program. I worked at for 10, 11 years. Like that. Um, and in teaching that course, what I found surprising, and actually also the course that we talked about earlier where it was kind of intro to technology, was that getting your computer set up to do the work itself was a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And I was it always kind was. of – I was always kind of looking for a, an easier way to do that. And at the same time, I don't like a place where someone comes here, come use this software, and it's already set up for you, them. And then as soon as that class is over, they don't have access to that machine set up with that software, and so all of it goes away. It's like coming into a sculpture space and using expensive equipment for chiseling marble and all that, and then leaving and knowing that you'll never be able to do that work unless you have all those tools. Um, yeah. yeah. So – we do a thing in those kind of classes, um, kind of build up to it. Woo. Uh, get your T-shirt, install fest 2022. And so we just devote an entire class just to like, these are the things we're going to use. These are the cool. things, right? So yeah. everybody's in the same place, except they're not, right? Some people like immediately get it probably because they had a little bit of experience with some aspect of it. Some students who are like, you know, keyboards, computers, not my thing, right. scared, right? Yeah, yeah. Part of what we do is try to create a community of programmers. I actually got out of the software industry. I went to – I also went to UCSC as an undergrad, which I don't know if you knew. And I was a CI, uh, a computer, ma computer science major. And I got out of it because it was a programmer culture. What is a programmer, Wes? So, like, for instance, we had a teacher who was like, hey, in the real world, people collaborate. So you know, on the final, you guys can completely collaborate. There's no reason somebody – everyone can't get an A. So I asked lab partner that I had worked with throughout the class. I was like, hey, can you want to work together? And they're like, well, 
you know, the class is still graded on a curve. And if you had done better in other parts of it, well, then that might put me behind you. I'm what? Like, what? Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, you've been a software engineer for a long time and you know which people to ask for help and which ones are going to say like, oh, you don't know that? Yeah. That's programmer. That's a, you know, that bro culture of male dominance is the reason why there are so few women or non-male folk working in the computer industry. And yeah. even though that there have been inroads and erosion of that all-male culture, still at the top of all those engineering departments are by and large male. Mm-hmm. Cis het dudes, right? With that whole um, uh, attack it with war and competition. Yeah, exactly. Right. Thing we're talking about. We'll go to war on bugs. Um, so in my classes, we say we're creating a culture of programmers who are here to support each other. Like if you know nice. a thing, share a thing, right? Um, if somebody doesn't know, like the thing I love to hear most in my classes is like, oh, can I help? And so you get people who are offering to help people who don't know, people who are worried or nervous or, or whatever, or don't feel capable or have, um, you know, uh, uh, what's it called? Um, like an impediment to learning math stuff. Imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. Oh, that's yeah, similar. right. So like people are like, oh, you know, that's – right? Um, and so we create a culture where we support each other. And so that changes even that moment like where like day two, we're all installing everything. Then someone says like, oh, I got I, I got my system squared away. How can I help you? That's good. That's nice. And it's delightful. It's nice to see they they form friendships. They form, um, you know, uh, they work together. I, I watch them move through one, two, three classes together. Support each other and make friends. Wes, are you optimistic about humanity? I'm an anarchist, Lyle. That is an optimistic philosophy. Because as an anarchist, you say, I believe that humans, while sometimes in competition, their needs are basically not in conflict and we can find ways to satisfy all of our needs. I don't think of that as my first definition of anarchy. I mean, you can say, so an anarchist is a person who seeks a autonomous collection of groups or individuals working together to um, voluntarily, uh, you know, do things. Um, and that is a very optimistic philosophy, is to believe that that's even possible in the world. Can you compare it to a different philosophy that you find less compelling? How about like libertarianism, which often gets uh, compared to anarchy? Libertarianism is focused on a lack of control or I do – it's basically like – think of it as like – um classic like country living you know you do what you do on your property and i do what i do on my property 
but I don't expect you to come over to my property or help me if I need it. Um, so anarchism is like libertarianism, but with a heart. That's and awesome. so it's, uh, it's also like country living, but more traditional country living where you say, I'm putting up a barn and I say, awesome, me and my friends will be there and we're going to help. Um, do you need anything else? I have some building materials left over from a project uh, that you're absolutely welcome to. Um, we don't make conditions like you take that sheet 10 and I get your old water. You, it's, Which is you more need capitalism. Yeah, you need a thing. We're here. You know, have a thing, leave a thing, need a thing, take a thing, and um, we work and we take care of each other. I have your back and you have mine. That's can you can anything be more optimistic than that? Do you think of Burning Man as a bit anarchistic? How do you say that? Anarchistic. Anarchistic. Thing. Uh, absolutely, that it comes from those roots. Um, it comes from those roots. Um, it also has like a certain libertarian flair as well. Yeah, it has anarchistic roots. I never know with Burning Man how examined, even though I've been going for like at this point, like since 1993, not continually, but off and on. I never know how self-examined Burning Man is, even though they have principles that they've articulated and so on. I never know, like, philosophically how close they look at what they've done or where they're going. I don't know. I don't have an in in that sense. If you could change one thing about where we live, whether it be globally, uh, uh, federally, or <laughs> locally, what would what thing would you change? To make the, I'm assuming that we both work from the same perspective to make the world better for more people mm -hmm. or the area better for more people. It's easy to reach for the things that you know are hurting the most people now. And at least in our area, we literally live in one of the most expensive places on the planet. Now, of course, it costs more to live in Singapore or San Francisco or New York, right? But there's also like better paying jobs as well in those places. Um, so like just in terms of like job to like, you know, median $850,000 house, which is just set the record. That's like nearly a million dollars. Um, and that's a median house. Um, that's fucking crazy. That's like crazy. And the, and the salary is, you know, $20 an hour. I mean, that's the. Totally. Right. right? Like that's what I'm. That's what I said I was making, you know, as a university professor. That feels like a thing. <laughs> that feels like a – um, and even not just from this point of view of like, yeah, it would be nice if the students that we are inviting to come go to school at the university or the workers that we would like to work, say, back house at a restaurant. It would be neat if they could afford to live in the area that they are – working in right yeah but it also has an impact even on those of us who are somehow managing to survive um you work in a job that pays relatively well i happen to have bought a house in 2002 before any really substantive bubble and so i just lucked out and bought like a shack and the shack is my beautiful lovely shack right um and so 
fortune. Good fortune favors me. We were talking about luck earlier. Yep. Yeah. I'm luck and privilege. Luck and privilege. Privilege. Mm -hmm. Um, So unfortunately I watched all my friends move out of this area. So it, it makes us poorer. Mm-hmm. And so commensurately having affordable housing would make us richer if people who are less privileged than us could live in our neighborhood. Thanks. I mean, we all know somebody who lucked out and bought like the last, whatever, $350,000 house in the neighborhood or whatever, but those are real. Those are like, yeah, those are at the end of that bell curve. So that would be a thing. I don't necessarily have a solution. Anarchists don't always have solutions. They just more like ask a lot of hard, (laughs) ask a lot of good questions, but like ownership of property in like a land that was stolen from the, uh, the people who were here. Um, I forget which, uh, tribes were originally in. Well, the Ohlone is general, but there's actually a more local. um, Yeah, there is. And I forget it. And I can't remember the name. Embarrassed by that. Um, so yeah, like ownership of property and most of the time when questions seem too complicated to answer, part of the reason is it's because we're looking for an individual solution like, what can you do to stop global warming? Fucking Nada. nothing. Nothing, yeah. right? Um, the answer is often systemic. And yeah. if you look at, like, say, gentrification, right? You have, a, like, the mission in San Francisco was, like, predominantly Latinx um, and black. And then slowly tech moved into that area. And But it started with, like, like I had like artist friends and punk friends who lived in the mission, right. Um, who were like the vanguard of gentrification and then coffee shops opened up. And then, you know, you have, uh, people who have a little bit more money moving. So like gentrification is often one of those things. Like we point the finger individually, like up the economic ladder without considering our own place in it. But we never finger the system that is, like making that, like making the economics of owning and selling a house uh, a thing. So as a radical, I'm always like looking at that. I don't always have, I seldom honestly really have solutions, but like other than it is heartening to hear that Gen Z and Gen Alpha has like the lowest levels of trust in capitalism since we've been measuring such things. So, so we just need to die pretty much and then our children will create a better society. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they also though have a a feeling of there's a bit of hopelessness too. Like a I was talking to someone in their someone was twenty five recently. You know, they didn't feel like they'd ever have a house. That felt ridiculous. But also why would you want a house if the world is burning? And just the whole idea that they'll have a future to live in is questionable to them. I didn't have that as a kid. I didn't think of it that way. Even at 25, I I still was feeling like the world was going to be okay. But of course, talk about privilege. But I mean, like, being hopelessness only takes you so far when you realize, like, there's no real giving up. Like, what does giving up even mean? You know right. what I mean? Like, you can end it all, but that's not really most people's paths. So then it's like somewhere that hopelessness turns to action that despair 
has to, because people have to survive. Right. Got to eat. If you think about like, um, last summer's, uh, uprising around the shooting of George Floyd, you have a population in Minneapolis or, or elsewhere who are very despairing and, and, um, with very little hope. And then that hope or that despair turns to anger and rage. And then possibilities open up. Doors are kicked down. New possibilities emerge. And I think that's probably where the Utes are headed. Wes, thank you so much for doing this with me. Yeah, thanks for asking me on the spur of the moment. <laughs> Apparently, I like your question. Like, do you ever say no? Because I was counting on you not saying no. When you're like, can I interview you it in an true. hour? It is true. It was like an hour. Well, the thing is, I decided to do this thing once every day for January. And it like all of a sudden, the 2nd of January started getting really gone. And I'm like, wait a second, what happened here? Ooh, so I was yeah. making my list. And you've always been top of mind for me. So it was easy to think. That I'll just what a fun you. project. Thank you for doing this. And thanks for including me. I really appreciate it, Lyle. Pleasure. And as Thoreau said, you have to throw your body on the gears of the machine until the, mach- until the gears of injustice cannot turn. So I did some looking. I couldn't find the actual quote, but this is the closest I got uh, from Henry David Thoreau's Civil Disobedience and Other Essays. If the injustice is part of the necessary friction of the machine of government, let it go. Let it go. Perchance it will wear smooth. Certainly the machine will wear out. But if it is of such a nature that it requires you to be the agent of injustice to another, then I say, break the law. Let your life be a counter-friction to stop the machine. So clearly what he's speaking there is, and metaphorically, throwing yourself on the gears of injustice or the gears of the machine to stop injustice. It's, it's close. It's, it has the same essence. So very good. At least it got me to look up a bit about Thoreau. Thanks, Wes. Action is the antidote to despair.